well, I grew up in a world that probably most people who would tune into this um, a podcast will find almost impossible to imagine. I grew, <laughs> I grew up in, in communist East Germany. Um, so I, I grew up in a, in a, in a Christian family um, and that meant a lot because it meant a, uh, b- because because the entire environment in which I operated wasn't just not Christian or not religious but was um, decidedly anti-religious. Welcome back to Crafting Theology presented by the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies. On this podcast, we talk to scholars about the key life experiences that shape the direction of their research. We hope these conversations illuminate both the how and the why of theological studies in a changing world. Today we sit down with Professor Johannes Sackhuber from Oxford to discuss early Christianity's relationship to philosophy, and on a more personal note, how growing up in communist East Germany helped shape his scholarly pursuits and situates his understanding of the place for religion in contemporary society. Welcome back to Crafting Theology, hosted by the SLU Department of Theological Studies. Today we are joined by Professor Johannes Zachhuber, Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology, at Trinity College, Oxford. Professor Zachuber, thank you so much for joining us. For those who aren't familiar with your work, could you give us a brief sketch both of your background and your academic path? I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I am a historical and systematic theologian. My interests are really in, in, in equal measure both on the historical um, and the systematic side of theological studies. On the historical side, I have two main areas in which I've worked and that keep attracting me um, over the decades. One is patristic thought, especially Greek patristic thought. Um, That's actually where I started my academic career. Having studied for undergraduate degrees in Germany. I came to the University of Oxford as a master's student in 1994. um, And that's really when I started working on Greek patristics and in particular on Gregory of Nyssa. Mm -hmm. Um, And the kind of questions that attracted me to um, Gregory in particular have really shaped my later academic interests in very, very broad ways, especially the question of how Christianity can define itself vis-a-vis its uh, its environment, um, how Christian thought, Christian theology, can be ought to be related to philosophy, but then also, even though I didn't probably realize it at the time, the kind of question at a higher level, how does our historical engagement with figures from the distant past actually feed into our own Mm. theological thought today? So that interest in the the, uh, theological and philosophical thought of the Greek fathers has really remained with me until now. Um, After I finished my uh, doctorate at Oxford, I moved back to Germany and taught at Humboldt University in Berlin for the next eight years. And at that time, uh, my research 
shifted um, and I started up a, a major project on 19th century um, Christian theology. But in many ways, the questions I were pursuing there were very similar. It was again about the relationship between theology and con contemporaneous philosophy. And mm. it was again um, also about the way um, historical research could be integrated into, um, in, in, into, into theological thought. Since 2005, um, I've been teaching at, at the University of Oxford, and really since then I've, I've tried to uh, pursue these, these different um, research interests to the best of my ability, and as much as my busy schedule leaves me time to do it. Now, it's, it's unique that as a scholar you have these two distinct specializations in two disparate historical epochs. On the one hand, late antique patristics and post-Reformation German theology. Do you find that there is a link between them, uh, either intellectual or textual, or was it simply a sort of function of the theological academy that you were in that you focused on the second area? I think an honest answer is that it's a mix of reasons. Uh, there were partly just pragmatic reasons that um, made me choose the topics I chose, which is, I suspect, true for, for many people. It's, it's about your colleagues, it's about the people you're working with who uh, uh, suggest um, avenues um, of investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that certainly uh, played its role. Um, I would say that, well, a, a, second, a second answer definitely is that it's, you know, it's the, it's the same questions in many ways. Mm. I know that a lot of people um, nowadays, and certainly people you meet in, in the theological faculties in, in Britain, but also in the US, uh, look to 19th century Germany with a mixture of perhaps perhaps admiration but also really suspicion mm -hmm. so so people know that a lot of a lot of the the, the groundwork for um, modern theology was really laid in those decades but then there is also the verdict that's been um, issued by, by Karl Barth and, and been echoed by so many other people um, a Protestant Catholic um, and, and 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 orthodox and uh, and many many uh, um, in 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 any event that the, you know this was just theological liberalism and it is really uh, what we need to get away from. One of the things that's uh, that's constantly been with me while I was studying um, these nineteenth-century figures, people like F. C. Bauer and Albrecht Ritschl, uh, were among those I've I've, I've been uh, working on, is is that. You know, however you want to think about the particular theological ideas they had, however you want to um, um, adjudicate their their historical um, scholarship, um, they were very serious theologians, and so inevitably they were confronted with similar or the same questions that someone like Gregory of Nyssa addressed mm -hmm. in the in the fourth century. They were uh, confronted by the need to reconcile their reading of scripture with a certain set of systematic questions that arguably couldn't be answered directly from the Bible. And so you need a certain hermeneutic to find answers to these questions mm -hmm. in scripture. Um, but they were also um, 
engaged with theological issues, the question of God, the question of how humanity is related to God, the question of how humanity's knowledge of God feeds into a theological reflection, and so on and so forth. You know, these questions, of course, are asked in very different ways in mm -hmm. European modernity uh, and, or, and, and were asked very differently in, in Greek-speaking late antiquity. But I think there's really an underlying commonality between them. And if I may, and I'm sorry my answer's <laughs> running on a little, um, there, there is a certain aspect that's, uh, sorry, a third aspect that's also really matter to me. And that is that I feel if you start as, a, as, as I did, as, uh, as a student of Greek patristics, you learn the trade from the secondary literature inevitably. And you're fed the secondary literature as if it's just mm. objective scholarship that mm -hmm. tells you about how things were um, in the first millennium. Um, one thing that I feel I've learned from studying the 19th century is that, of course, it's not objective at all, but many or most of the reigning views that exist in patristic scholarship have their origins in very particular theological positions that people were arguing for on one side or the other of a, of, of a dividing line in, in, these, in these 19th and early 20th century theological controversies. So I feel studying and understanding better these modern controversies has really given me a handle on understanding what has actually shaped the paradigms of modern patristic scholarships, but also what has shaped the questions that even we, I think, are often asking when we're approaching patristic texts. You're speaking this evening on the topic of theology, the relationship between theology and philosophy uh, in the late antique patristic period. Could you give us just a quick overview of how theologians thought of themselves as theologians or as philosophers or as a whole different category within the patristic era? I think, I think we have a really big problem um, with categories when it comes to early Christian, early patristic thought. In some ways, what emerged at the time was utterly novel and innovative. To us, it sounds so normal to think of theology as being somehow related to faith and somehow related to religion. But in the environment of late antiquity, that was in a way an unprecedented thing to emerge. It was not something that had ever existed really among uh, the Greeks or the Romans to an extended head in Judaism, but even that was very, very different from what happened within, within Christianity. Um, so people didn't think of it for the entire patristic period as we do now as, a, as, a, as an intellectual discipline called theology. They didn't use the word theology even though they knew the Greek word theologia um, uh, at the time, but they didn't use that to describe their own pursuit of what we would now call theology, in other words, doctrine and biblical commentary um, and, and so forth. Um, so how can we understand it? Well, my proposal um, really is to say, let's start uh, with the assumption that 
early Christian thought is just a variant of ancient philosophy. Mm -hmm. Now, in order for that to make sense, we have to see that philosophy in late antiquity was also very, very different from what's taught as philosophy, for example, in a modern university. Um, philosophy involved commitment to a particular lifestyle. The great French scholar mm -hmm. Pierre Hadot yeah. has spoken of philosophy uh, as a way of life. Um, that's, 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 I think, a very uh, good observation. Um, philosophy also existed in the institutional environment of a school. There were school heads who had you know, existed in a succession and so there was a historical connection to the original founder of the school. Um, philosophers often wrote scriptural commentaries. Um, actually, that's the bulk of what they wrote, mm. even though you wouldn't believe that if you read a history of ancient philosophy today. So, um, you know, once we look at ancient philosophy, or in particular the philosophy of late antiquity, along those lines, the similarities to what early Christian authors were doing um, are, 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 are much more obvious than if we think of it along the lines of, you know, what modern, modern philosophy is. At the same time, I don't think that, the, that this analogy works all the way. In some ways, I think, um, perhaps we could say, Christian, quote-unquote, theology is a sort of outsized philosophical school. The authority of biblical scripture is much greater than the authority mm. of the writings of Plato, for example, mm -hmm. for a Platonist. The church as an institution is much more complex and much more um, powerful than, than a philosophical school. Um, the the way the Christian faith determined every element of your life is you know goes much further than the sort of thing that Ado had in mind when he talked about philosophy as a way of life, and so I think we should understand you know ultimately we should say that Christian theology is a sui generis thing. It isn't really understood on the basis of one single notion or one single concept mm. um, of. That, that that was in existence at the time and that brings me back to my original point it is ultimately an utterly novel and innovative development during that period but I think that we should start from seeing it as emerging in analogy to a philosophical school even though in the end it grew out of um, uh, even that category what brought you as uniquely yourself to the discipline of theology. Do you come from a confessional background? Uh, was there any pivotal figures in your academic upbringing that directed you uh, in particular ways? Well, I grew up in a world that probably most people who would tune into this um, a podcast will find almost impossible to imagine. I grew, <laughs> I grew up in, in communist East Germany. Um, so I, I grew up in a, in a, in a Christian family um, and that meant a lot because it meant a, uh, because because the entire environment in which I operated wasn't just not Christian or not religious but was um, decidedly anti-religious um, and it was um, so 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 the way I experienced the reality of, of, of the Christian faith um, 
um, as, as a child and a, and, a, and a young person was as something, you know, perhaps the word that we would use today as countercultural. I always feel, mm. you know, back then it was really countercultural because everything um, that existed, whether it was television or it was the educational system or it was, um, or was the was the academy to the extent that that it was permitted, was was geared in conscious opposition to the claims by uh, made made by a religion such as such as Christianity. Now the interesting experience for me was that at that in that particular context, um, the, the 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 questions questions of the relevance of the Christian faith um, seemed much less difficult to answer <laughs> than, than perhaps they are today. Mm-hmm. It seemed it, it never was doubtful to me um, while this whole world lasted, uh, which was until I was 22, um, that being a Christian was what I wanted to be and what I had mm. to be and what I um, was very happy to be um, because it just seemed to offer um, in so many ways a different and better answer to the questions that life and the world was asking. It was so much better equipped to provide me and the people I knew and uh, and, and, and and was friends with, um, with with the framework for their moral existence. Um, that it just seemed seemed a no-brainer in many ways. Um, and the decision to study theology um, really arose from 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 that from that background. It just it just seemed to me at the time um, an entirely obvious choice to make to commit to to that admittedly shrinking part mm. of society, which nonetheless, to me, as I said, obviously seemed the one part that um, had alternatives to offer. When then, in 1989 and 1990, um, things changed. I think you know everybody saw that that was indeed the case, <laughs> and that and 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 the particular role that the Christian churches played during these political transitions. Um, you know, are very, very lasting uh, memories to me, and 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 likewise, um, continue to inform my own self understanding, uh, both as a as as a Christian and as a, as a theologian. Interestingly, what I've experienced in the decades since mm. is is something very interesting. That on the one hand, all the restrictions are gone, which in so many ways made it difficult to mm. be. To be a Christian or a theologian mm-hmm. under this communist regime, but the absence of these restrictions has kind of created its own problems. Perhaps if I can go back to the the, the object of my historical research, perhaps that is actually a little similar to what people in the fourth century found mm-hmm. um, after after Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Mm-hmm. That on the one hand, all the things that you probably wished for were suddenly fulfilled, but on the other hand, you realized that this wasn't paradise. Um, but in in many ways, it, it it raised questions that were, if anything, even more difficult to answer. It, it strikes me that 
in many ways, that's a very patristic answer in that there's a, there's a certain environment of opposition and suffering in which Christianity really seems to flourish in, in paradoxical ways. Now, though, as, as Germany and, and England are largely secular societies, how do you as a theologian with such a grounding in the importance of Christianity, Christianity understand your role as a public intellectual? I look at two things there. On the one hand, and I realize that may be counterintuitive to, to, to some people, but I have to say that you know, when people say the country's become secular, I think that is true and it isn't true. Hmm. It's It seems to me that we often look at countries, especially European countries, and we start counting, counting the percentages of people who still go to church. Mm -hmm. But what are we measuring that against? We measure it against a past when everybody was Christian. But I think it's easy to see that that was in many ways an entirely artificial situation. It was a situation that was generated by a particular alliance that the Christian churches had entered into with um, with the political powers of the day. And I think whatever our own religious affiliations, we should be capable now to of seeing that that was a deeply ambiguous decision. Well, I think Americans should find it easy <laughs> to see that as a deeply mm -hmm. ambiguous um, and problematical decision. And of course, you know, we don't have sociology of religion from the 18th century, um, but on the on the anecdotal basis of what we read in the uh, in the in, in sermons or in memoirs of, of priests during that time, what kind of Christianity was it that people confessed? Yes, everybody had their children baptized, people married and got married in church. Um, but in between, um, you know, we shouldn't think of that period as a, as, as a golden age of, of, mm. of religion. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that, you know, when people say it's a largely secularized country, my first question would be, what is... What's the natural, what's the normal situation? Should 80% of the population be part of a Christian church? 60, 40, 20? And I really don't mean to be um, sophistical about this, mm -hmm. uh, but it is true, isn't it, that if there was any other social or political or cultural movement that would say uh, have the support of 20% of the population, everybody would say that's super popular. We normally never ex accept uh, expect the whole population of a country to unite around one such cause. And I really don't say that to make a difficult situation look better, but I really mm -hmm. think that at one point we would all do well to free ourselves from what I think is an obsession with statistics there. Hmm. And I think that often when people, I mean, why would I object to seeing a largely secularized country? Because I think you go and talk to people who work in parishes. You look at the work that's done, even in a place like Oxford where I work and teach, and I don't think that 
everything's just dying there. You find youth groups that are very, very active. You find people who find a lot of purpose in their encounter with the Christian faith. You find mm -hmm. people who perhaps, you know, were totally indifferent to religion at some point in their lives and then discover the power of the faith um, at, at, at a later stage of their lives. So all these things still happen, and I think as long as they happen, I personally would say it's more important that they do happen than to quantify them on a scale that, as far mm. as I'm concerned, doesn't really have an objective um, 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 determination because we don't really know, as I said, what, 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 what would the normal situation mm -hmm. be. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's one thing I would say. And I, I really, I, I really mean that. As I said, I don't, I don't mean it simply as a, as, as, as a kind of apology or um, as, 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 as just comforting uh, uh, Christians in a, in a situation where their numbers are declining. I, I do realize that numbers are declining, and I do realize that where that happens, that in itself creates a very difficult environment that is not easy um, uh, to deal with, uh, neither for. A, a, professional priests nor for the people in, mm -hmm. the, in, in the pew. But I, I think that isn't the complete picture and that's true f in, in, in all the places I know from, from personal experience. So that's, that's, that's one part. Um, on the intellectual side, um, and that's of course what, what, I'm, what I'm mostly um, engaged with in my, in my present life, again, I'm, I'm not at all I'm not at all defeatist. It seems to me that the, the 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 Christian tradition has a lot to contribute to contemporary debates on ethical questions, on social questions, on political questions, but also really on the intellectual culture more widely. And I sometimes think the one thing you find is happening in Europe and I leave it to you or to others to comment on how that compares to the US what people call secularization in other words the the fact that social institutions are no longer automatically associated with Christianity takes away a certain pressure and in a way also open spaces because being for or against Christianity is no longer so such a confrontational attitude. I think in some ways, and often seems to me that in a place like Oxford, it was more difficult to talk about religion 40 years ago because religion was so strongly anchored everywhere. You had mandatory chapel services. You had, you know, grace, and you know, all the, mm -hmm. all these things were symbols, and people who wanted to somehow not conform to expectations would rebel against that. Mm. Um, ever since I've been a member of the senior common room at uh, uh, Trinity College, I, I don't think I can say that I've I've ever encountered hostile attitudes, and that isn't because everybody's Christian. Of course, m many, perhaps most people nowadays aren't. But I find that that also, in a way, opens up new possibilities. And I, I, I so, so now, now I do say something about the U.S., but obviously only as, as, an, <laughs> as, an, as an observer from the outside. But I do wonder whether, in some ways, this more starkly confrontational culture that seems to exist between mm. the, the 
religious and the and the and the liberal or secular wing of American public life is really is is is, is something that may also just just um, uh, become become less of a problem um, when perhaps the society. I mean, we we say the society becomes more secular, but perhaps it be. A big, a, 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 this process can be liberating in that it makes it easier for people to say, well, I don't think of myself as a Christian, but I do respect that other people do. And I, I can see that what they want and what they say and what they contribute is really something that's valuable for society, which I suspect is very difficult at a point mm. when being for or against religion as such a shibboleth, um, which of course, it's been in European societies until a generation ago, and sometimes perhaps still <laughs> is. But I think it isn't. It it, it isn't. It isn't a shibboleth as much as it used to be. And if I finally would say something about the way that plays out in 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 in, in the intellectual space of Oxford University, I would definitely say that having, let's say, an interdisciplinary research project on religion, in which historians. Um, um, let's say classical scholars, theologians and others come together is easier, hmm. arguably, than it would have mm-hmm. been a few decades ago, because again it's it's no longer seen as something that requires a very conscious decision, am I on this or that side of a deep cultural divide? Mm. Mm-hmm. So on the whole, I personally think, um, how can you how can you be a Christian believer and not trust in the power of these ideas? Um, and if you do that, then surely an environment where these ideas can be spoken about and made known to people will always allow people to find meaning uh, and and truth in, uh, in in what's being said. Well, Professor Zach Huber, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and, and being willing to sit down and talk with us. Uh, I look forward to your lecture tonight. And yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mitchell. It was great, great pleasure. Thanks for listening to our podcast. A special thanks to Dr. Grant Kaplan and the SLU Department of Theological Studies for their help in bringing Dr. Zach Huber to campus and finding time in his busy schedule to talk with us. Please subscribe to Crafting Theology on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, leave us a review. This podcast was produced and edited by Craig Sanders and Mitchell Stevens of the SLU Theology Digital Communications team. For more information on the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies, programs, and faculty, visit our website, slu.edu theology.